Welcome to Bio, a podcast produced by the Biographers International Organization. Bio is devoted to promoting the work of biographers and advocating for biography as a genre with the support of biographers and biography lovers worldwide. I'm Bio member Sonia Williams in Washington, D.C. On each episode, we'll talk with a biographer about his or her work. This week, we continue our series of special episodes featuring highlights from panel discussions during BIO's virtual annual conference in May 2021. The session, Writing the First Biography of Your Subject, featured authors Justin Gifford, Abigail Santamaria, and Carol Kalenica. The panel was moderated by BIO member Debbie Applegate. Thank you for being here on our uh, our very first virtual BIO conference. We are here today to talk about what it's like to be writing the very first biography of your subject, or maybe the first modern biography, certainly in my case. Um, let me introduce who we have. Oh, uh, you'll have to pardon me, Carol. I don't think I've ever actually pronounced your name aloud. May I ask you to say it for us? Galenica. Galenica. Uh, Carol, as uh, many of you may know, is the biographer of Alice Adams, a portrait of writer, which came out, well, just two years ago. And of course, her biography of Raymond Carver, A Writer's Life. Uh, She's also uh, a PhD in literature, so she has done all kinds of work uh, besides this. Uh, Same with Dr. Justin Gifford, also a professor, but is probably best known for his biographies of Iceberg Slim and Eldridge Cleaver. And I have here with me, uh, all the way from Block Island, where they have very little internet service, uh, Abigail Santamaria, who is the author of Joy, uh, Poet Seeker and the Woman Who Captivated C.S. Lewis, and is currently working on a biography entitled I Am Meg, The Life of Madeline Langle. Um, I myself am working on my second biography, which is also essentially a first biography. I will start before I turn the questions over to the panel by saying at first when this was suggested to me that I thought, "Eh, isn't it all the same, whether you're doing a later biography or a first biography. But then I realized the minute I gave it any thought that no, in fact, I had very strong prejudices against writing biographies about people who already had been written about. Uh, I say that because Many times uh, it has been suggested to me that I should write about a president, maybe Washington, maybe Benjamin Franklin, and wouldn't there be more money in that? Uh, And undoubtedly there would be, but I think my, uh, speaking for myself, maybe it's temperament issue. I started really thinking about it and thinking maybe I just feel more power being the first or maybe more freedom, or maybe I just didn't want to have to read a whole bunch of things that other people wrote and have to respond. So I'm more curious to hear what other people say. So we're going to take the panel, I think, by doing it through um, sort of the book process, starting with uh, proposing and researching and writing and marketing. But I thought we might start with just a general discussion uh, about the kind of the pros and cons of writing a first biography. There are certainly people who prefer to be in the swim of things already, and there are people who prefer to, to cut through the ice first. So if I might ask Carol to sort of start off the discussion, because I know you had a lot of uh, drama, uh, but also a lot of success doing this. I have to say, I never thought about writing a second or third biography of someone. Um, Both of mine have been first biographies, but um, I was quite naive with my first one. There was no biography of Raymond Carver. I was a teacher. My students wanted to know more about Raymond Carver, and I just was sick of writing literary criticism, so I kind of stumbled into biography because it's quite a bit more fun in my opinion. Uh, He'd only been dead for at that point for about 12 years, I think. So I didn't wonder too hard why there was no biography. And I would suggest that anyone setting out to write a first biography should ask why there is no biography of this person already, or, you know, look in Publishers Weekly or something, ask around in this organization, find out if someone else is doing it. 
In the case of Carver, though, I just started uh, doing my interviews and I gradually heard that there was no biography because there was a big rift between the first and second wives, first wife and widow. And uh, again, naively, I just kept going for, which for me was a great blessing because that's how I got into the depth of the story. And I kept talking to everyone who would talk to me and I kept hearing that the widow would not talk to me. Uh, she ultimately did not, but it made it very difficult to get a contract because publishers want to know if you have the cooperation of a family or of a, an estate. If you don't, uh, you're going to have to convince them that you can write the book anyway, which you absolutely can, and I did. But those are things you have to, to look into. Um, as far as temperament and why first biographies, I think Debbie's right on the mark there. I mean, it's, uh, if you're writing about a more modern subject, unless you want to have a debate with another biographer, it's going to be most interesting to do all that research driven by your own curiosity and whatever reason brought you to this subject in the first place. Uh, I know Abby's going to talk about how difficult it can be to get the archives together for a first biography, but you can, you always have to go beyond whatever archives are first there. If you're going to write a second or third biography, you still have to look for information that the other biographer didn't have. It's not just a critical debate. Um, with oh. Alice Adams, I was also motivated by wanting to give her more prominence. After writing about Carver, I was interested in writing about a woman short story writer, and she was one of my favorites, and I thought quite neglected. I think she's kind of still neglected. I'm not sure we solved that problem, but uh, you've got to have the passion and the curiosity driving the book, I think. How long did you have to work on uh, The Widow and the other main stakeholders before you could convince your publisher that uh, that this was? Well, I don't know, because I worked a long time before I even was trying to get a publisher. A couple people discouraged me. And then I, you know, then I'm actually, oh, here's how it went. One of the people I was interviewing, a friend of Carver's, loved what I was doing and introduced me to an agent. And once I had an agent, um, that changes everything. And the agent within a month or two ran into an editor who was really interested in Raymond Carver. He had shaken his hand once and felt touched by him. And so he was willing to, you know, get on the train with me and help solve this problem. Which is to say it helps if you have somebody who's a mythical figure that editors are already interested in. Absolutely. In the case of Carver, not to go on about him too much, but there was an oral biography. So in a way, it wasn't a totally first biography. I, I saw a lot of gaps in that oral biography. So in a way, I guess I did go into something that had been written about a bit. Did it feel like a different game when you were doing Alice Adams because she's less iconic for a lot of people? Yes, but there were so many other kinds of differences. I guess, you know, as, as I've been thinking about this topic since we met the other day, I mean, I feel like every biography is so different from every other one that this is not even the primary distinction to be made. Uh, with Adams, the people I had to talk to because of some, you know, a, a little generational difference and her success later in life, I was talking to people who were themselves quite prominent and often reluctant to talk to anybody about anything personal. Whereas most of the people in Raymond Carver's life were really kind of good old boys and good old girls who weren't afraid to talk to you about everything they remembered. Uh, so that was just one kind of difference. Um, I did have cooperation from Alice's son, so that made things immensely easier in some ways. Yeah. 
So if I might turn to you for a second, Justin, to talk about, we're moving into the question of how do you pitch one of these books? Uh, you had an iconic author, Iceberg Slim. Sorry, that's the one I know the best. Of course, the Eldridge Cleaver also, you ch clearly chose icons, but uh, certainly for the first one, you must have had to do some convincing. So I have two stories that I want to tell as kind of a way to illustrate what you need to put in your proposals, because the proposal is the make or break document that's going to get you a contract. The first thing I'd say that you absolutely need is some kind of research that no one has seen before. That can be in the form of an archi archival research or interviews with family members or some other kinds of documents that you find, but you can't just go in there with newspaper clippings that you got from the New York Times as a way of telling the story of this person's life. You have to find something new, something distinct. And the second thing you need is a hook. You need to convince this editor that this person, this figure has some sort of impact on contemporary culture in some direct and significant way. So I'll just quickly tell you two brief stories about my first two books to kind of illustrate this point. Um, so the first book I, I wrote was called Street Poison, the story of Iceberg Slim. And this was actually based on my dissertation that I wrote for my PhD back in 2006. And my research for this project was one of the first pieces of research that I did was I tracked down every single novel that Iceberg Slim had himself influenced. And he had influenced a vast number of what are called street lit novels. These are not novels that are sold in bookstores, but they're sold rather in liquor stores and bowling alleys and barber shops and places like this in inner city neighborhoods across the country. Is that still true? They're mostly out of print now. You can find them in a couple key bookstores, um, black bookstores in places in Harlem and in Philadelphia. But for the most part, these things are now out of print. So they start in the 60s and they run really up until the like early 2000s. But then with kind of like the digital world, these books kind of fall out of favor. Mm -hmm. But Iceberg Slim is really the, the kind of like pioneer of this genre. So I start looking for these books on what is at the time in 2002, a brand new website called eBay. And on eBay, I start finding all of these books and I'm reading literally hundreds of these novels. And one day I stumble across Iceberg Slim's clothing and shoes. His widow is selling all of his suits and all of his snakeskin shoes on eBay to raise money for charity because he had died a couple years earlier. So wait, when you, sorry to interrupt, but when you began your dissertation, was he still alive? No, he, would, he had died in 92. So I bought all these clothes and I contacted Diane Beck, who is Iceberg Slim's wife. And I said, can I come out to Los Angeles to interview you? I'm writing this dissertation and uh, I'd be really interested to talk to you. So she lets me come out there. A couple years later, I get a call from Ice-T, the rapper. And it turns out he's making a movie about Iceberg Slim and he had just interviewed Diane Beck for the film and he calls me up and says, well, we need a literary expert in the film. Would you want to be in the movie? And I say, of course I want to be in the movie, but only on the condition that you'll give me access to all of the interviews that you do for the film. So I get interviews not only to the family members and all of the publishers, but then also people like Chris Rock and Ice-T and Ice Cube and Dave Chappelle all the way down the list. And what I realized is that Iceberg Slim is not only this towering literary figure, but he's this underground cultural figure as well who's influenced all of modern black popular culture. Mm -hmm. And so this is my hook, like to go back to my original statement here of how you write a proposal is that you have to go and get those interviews and go to those archives but then you also have to show the editor that this thing matters right now and if you can't show them that you're not going to be able to sell this book did you get any pushback for not yourself being african-american not being uh at one with the culture originally you mean from jerry howard 
Yes, from my editor too. Or any or any when you were shopping it around. Um, not really, because I'm a PhD in English literature whose specialty is African American literature. And so I'm not claiming to occupy the subject position of a black person. I'm simply claiming that I can do the cultural history and biographical work that is necessary to tell this specific story. So, I mean, when I do get that question and I do get it, I mean, my response is like, hey, this is my training. This is the work that I have been doing for the last two decades. And more than any other person on this planet, I know the works of Iceberg Slim because I've been reading and studying the works of Iceberg Slim more than anyone else. With a couple of exceptions, actually. I've met some guys who came out of prison who told me that all they read while they were in prison is Iceberg Slim because he's incredibly popular within um, prisons. And some of the guys there, that's all they read. And I work in a prison right now in my spare time as a volunteer. And so while I'm working there, what's clear is that um, there's this alternative literary canon um, that is like a shadow canon to say Toni Morrison and James Baldwin and Ralph Ellison. And this is the world that I'm trying to kind of like uncover in this biography. I'll just quickly also say, just, just briefly for my second book, I didn't have connections to the family until much later. What I did have though, was this massive archive at Berkeley, the Bancroft. Um, Eldridge Cleaver has something like 40 cartons. I mean, these massive cartons of materials, everything from his FBI records to his unpublished novels, to letters to his mother, all of that is stored there. And so I spent two full summers, eight hours a day for 10 weeks going through every single piece of paper in that archive. And then after I was done, I wrote the proposal because that was material that no one had ever gone through in its entirety. And it was only after going through all that material, I was able to write a proposal that provided an angle on Cleaver that no one had had before. So two very different approaches to the proposal. Um, one archive, the other kind of like family connections. And both I think can work. Was it easier to pitch Eldridge Cleaver because he had a more elevated standing in political culture? It was much easier to pitch the iceberg slim um, because of that gangster rap angle. You know, once you tell people that Ice-T and Ice Cube both took their names from Iceberg Slim and that all of modern rap is based out of this kind of literary renaissance that happened in inner city communities that no one is talking about, that's the moment where people realize, I got to hear this story. I need to know something about this figure. Abby, I know a uh, different kind of character, uh, but I know you have had your own archival stories like this. My first uh, subject was Joy Davidman, who was a communist poet and film critic in the 30s and 40s, at best known for marrying C.S. Lewis and uh, the movie Shadowlands with uh, Deborah Winger played Joy and she's now best known you know, for that part of her life. Um, but similar to, to Carol's experience, both my subjects had sort of been written about before. So she had been written about in many biographies of C.S. Lewis. And then there was, there were a couple of small books that, you know, like 140 page, you know, thin books about her relationship with C.S. Lewis, but not a full biography of her. And then with Madeline Lengel, my current subject in, in progress, uh, there was a, um, a book published by FSG in, I think, 2012. And I had really um, similar points to make as Justin, that what you really need in the proposal stage to show an editor is one access to something that nobody has before. Um, so family uh, documents, interviews, people. And then the other thing is um, what makes the life interesting. So my editor for my first book, Joy, that was with Houghton Mifflin Harcourt, and she uh, moved to FSG and FSG was Madeline Langle's publisher for decades. And they published Wrinkle in Time and then had a relationship with her for the rest of her life, which was another 44 years and published many of her other books in numerous genres. So when my editor moved to FSG, she called my agent and she said, I would really like to do 
Madeline Langle with Abby. Oh, and um, isn't that nice? Which was That's... amazing. I mean, the idea had come up like several years before in passing in conversation about possible next subjects. But I mean, how great is like it was such a great feeling to have somebody say that. But I was also in a place in my life where I was I was pregnant with my second child, and I I just thought I don't think I can do both at the same time. I don't think I can write another book right now but I couldn't shake the idea. So I just thought there's no full biography of her out there. Let me just see if, if it's even a viable idea. You mean like Carol's point, which is if there's not a biography, why is there not exactly. a biography? There had to be right. a reason. So right. I, so I'm thinking about Madeline constantly as I was pushing my then two-year-old back and forth to daycare in his stroller on West 107th street on the Upper West side of Manhattan. And um, I knew that there was one collection of papers of Madeline's. I thought that was it because there was about a hundred boxes there in Illinois at Wheaton College. And it turned out the bigger chunk of the archive was in a Manhattan mini storage unit in a building on West 107th Street, two doors down from my son's daycare. I had been walking past it every day, not knowing that it was... Right right there. I mean, there were like original drafts of A Wrinkle in Time in this brick building that I was walking past full of storage units. So I immediately called my agent and I said, I think I have to figure out how to make this work. And she said, yeah, you do. And so (laughs) I was, you know, and so then I talked to my editor, uh, my editor of my first book about Madeline. And she said, okay, so I'm really interested, obviously, you know, she had mentioned it, but she said, um, I mean, she wrote many books, but she wrote a great book that she's known for a wrinkle in time, but did she have an interesting life? So that her question was, was her life interesting? Like, do people want to read about her life outside of the one great book that she's I mean, she wrote 60 books. She wrote about 60 books, if you, depending on how you define, you know, introductions and, uh, and anthologies and things like that. But that was the question I had to answer and I had to answer it very quickly. So I did not have Carol's experience of having worked on my subject for a very long time before writing the proposal. I immediately dove into this storage unit. I was four months pregnant, I had a, like a, a deadline that was immovable <laughs> because mm-hmm. I was going to be giving birth. And I wrote, you know, I was working on that proposal. I was just like a sponge gathering as much information as I possibly could to just write a proposal. And I was very focused because I was like, I'm not doing this book if I don't have, you know, a contract up at the beginning. I'm not going to spend two years researching. I had spent four years researching my first subject before I got a contract. In both cases, incidentally, and this like it can't be underestimated how much it helped that when I started working on my first subject, Joy Davidman, and as I was getting close to the proposal stage, I learned that The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe was being made into a major motion picture by Disney uh, and Walden Media. And then um, actually the same thing happened with Wrinkle in Time as I was working on that proposal. And so that had to help. It helped. I mean, it, it had to help. And so, but as I was working on the proposal and well into it and the movie uh, was getting, you know, I had the baby. I actually was ended. I was like, I continued working on my proposal, like in the hospital. I had my laptop in the hospital with me. And then uh, the movie like date was coming. So you, in a way, because this is going to be one of my questions. I have only dealt with dead people because I guess it's also part of my desire for control that I am afraid of, of dealing with people who have only recently been dead. I like them well dead, long, long ago, no spouses or family members. But so what you're saying is some of it was just luck of timing? Is I think that... some, I mean, some of it really was just luck of timing, but. Uh, and you're charming. They I... obviously liked you. <laughs> yeah. They liked you. Uh, but access and access. I mean, I don't have exclusive access, but I, I mean, the first biography of Joy, I didn't have a contract up front about permissions. And I just sort of lived in absolute terror um, that I might piss somebody off enough before the book was finished to have all permissions revoked and the rug pulled out from under me. And I, at the end of that experience said, I will never, I just won't do that again. Did you guys have the similar issues or worries, I would guess? Uh, it's very unclear to me, to be quite honest, the uh, 
the legal state about quoting. Uh, I know that there are many opinions about quoting from sources. How did you guys handle that? If I might ask Carol and Justin. This is uh, where this whole question of fair use comes in, at least if you're talking about a writer. Mm -hmm. uh, fair use is something that biographers need to exploit a lot more than they do. Uh, Carl Rollison is an expert on this kind of thing and is probably on some panel that will tell you more about it. I'm sure he's written a book about it. But um, with Carver, because he was a short story writer and I did not have permission, I had to be really careful. I had to count the number of words in each quote. I had to count the number of words in the letter so that I knew what proportion. But when I did all that work, I then had the backing of Scribner lawyers to make these fair use quotations. Did you get pushback? Well, I did, but we ultimately ignored it because we knew we, we were within the law on what we were doing. So you entirely did it through fair use? I had no, with Alice Adams, no problem because I did have the cooperation of the estate. I, I want to point out it wasn't an authorized biography, but I had cooperation alongside the right to write it the way I wanted to. Mm -hmm. Justin, did you, did you have any issues? Oh, my dear Lord, did I have issues. Um, <laughs> let me tell you, I had two very opposing experiences with Iceberg Slim's family. I got permission, blanket permission from the beginning and there was absolutely no discussion. I just quoted freely as much as I wanted, as often as I wanted. And I had the book that I wanted to write exactly the way I wanted to write it. There wasn't even that much editing done when I turned it in. Um, with the other book, one of the things that happened that was really tragic was that my initial kind of meeting of the family was that I had written a section on Eldridge Cleaver's life where I had gone to a historical society and gathered information about Cleaver's great-great-grandfather who was a slave and then who had escaped from slavery during the Civil War. And I had written up a, the chapter about that and then sent it to Cleaver's son, Maceo, who was living in Saudi Arabia at the time. And then he agreed to meet with me in Morocco where we spent a week doing interviews together. And then through him, I was able to meet his mother, Kathleen Cleaver. And so everything was going along fine. Um, I worked with Kathleen for years, two years, but before we signed any paperwork, Maceo actually died and the family went into deep mourning for his death. And I would just send them emails about uh, getting permission signed. And this went on for, I don't know, eight months, maybe a year. And I was getting closer and closer to the deadlines. And, you know, I'm frantically sending them letters and emails and just getting absolutely no response whatsoever. And finally, like in the 11th hour, they came through and signed a blanket permission to let me quote anything. But I was going to have to basically either claim fair use, which my publisher was not willing to do because publishers are notoriously very conservative about this issue. They don't want to go to trial. They don't want to get sued. And so they either want you to get a fair use signature or they want you to take out quotes, um, at least in my case, which was Chicago Review Press. I'm sorry, what's a fair use signature? What does that mean? Just the Well, it's just, it's just a blanket permission that I can like quote anything from the archives. Okay. But without that, then you can only quote through what's called fair use, right? And actually the Leon Levy Center has a really useful statement on fair use on their website that you all might check out. Um, it explains how, um, I think what Carol said is right earlier that we need to exploit that a lot more than we do because we tend to defer to publishers who are a bit more cautious about this. So in the end it all worked out, but I will never do a contemporary subject again after this experience. <laughs> really? It was that, it was that stressful. I mean, I was, I was kind of looking at a situation where I was going to have to go back through my entire book and take out every single quote. I know somebody who that happened to at the 11th hour. 
But it famously happened with that biography of Salinger. Right, right. There's a question for you, Carol. Uh, someone's asking you, I'm sorry, there's so many. Uh, it's this multitasking between reading and listening. It's not easy. Um, I think the question was, Carol, you didn't have to indemnify your publisher, if I'm right. Marsha, I believe, had that question. I think I probably did. I, I'm sure they wouldn't have not had me. Yeah, no, I'm sure that's in the contract. <laughs> uh, I know we all had to work very closely on it and that it would have been very terrifying if I had not had the editor I had who was both very committed to the book and very knowledgeable because he was a senior editor, Colin Harrison at Scribner. Abby, you were going to add. I, my experience is more similar to Justin's. I, I've had permission for both my subjects to quote from their papers, but ancillary uh, characters in the biography, not always. And so the first, oh. um, the, oh. yeah, so the oh. first, <laughs> oh, no. the, fir the first, <laughs> if it was my biography of Joy, um, she had a very rich correspondence with somebody who was not a featured important character in the book, but their letters back and forth to each other were very telling. And it was really important to me to be able to quote and, and to, to show the context, to be able to quote um, his letters to her so that I could mm -hmm, tell mm -hmm. the richness and, and the depth and the nuances of their conversation. And um, he wasn't even important enough for me to be interviewing anybody who uh, may have still been alive, but his papers were archived at the University of Wyoming or something. And the archivist just sent me copies of, of all their letters, which was, there's maybe 10 letters of each of them or something back and forth. And um was all I had in this particular period of her life. It was like the only mm -hmm. correspondence at all I had um, related to a very important moment in her life. And so I quoted a great deal from them. And then the lawyer for um, Houghton Mifflin Harcourt insisted that I either had to get permission or I had to take really? out a lot of the quotes. And this was some, the letters were from the 19, from 1939. And um, I don't know how long this person had been dead, but well, there's a question here, I believe, from Beverly Gray, who is saying it's a, another fair use. We, we, this is the problem with doing contemporary but first biographies is you tread all over uh, these questions that perhaps were for some other uh, panel. But uh, Beverly's question was, uh, there are major archival holdings on my subject that are not restricted, no descendants or family members. What's to stop me from quoting at will? I mean, I would, I'm very surprised that if that archive was giving you uh, copies and they'd been dead since 1939. They felt that, was it the archive who said you cannot use that? No, it was my publisher's lawyer. It was the legal re oh. review of my manuscript where my publisher's lawyer insisted that I take out, um, if, if a letter is a sentence long and you quote that one sentence in your book, you are reprinting the letter because it's not just a percentage of the letter, it's the entire letter is one sentence. Oh, so you're reprinting a letter. <laughs> so we got into the nitty gritty of, well, how many words is the entire letter and how many words of each wow. letter am I quoting? And um, I just sort of like, I was also on deadlines and I was trying to do all of it and um, was trying to figure this out and get permissions and do the photos and, and had a newborn. And it was like, I, okay, fine. I'll just cut the, take it out. I'm just going to take it take out. It. But so I, I got away with as many words as I could, but I cut, cut a lot. And well, I, I might go to another point from Melissa Homestead, uh, who uh, has a properly derisive uh, point, which is this whole thing is ridiculous. <laughs> if your subject is not a literary figure and doesn't have a designated executor, is there someone to ask? Or do you just proceed until apprehended or until your publisher gets uh, nervous? Is, is that the answer? I just, I'm always baffled when I hear, I, I mean, I've heard Carl Rollison talk about his experiences many times and I'm all, it's so radically different from what I have experienced during my legal read, during the legal read for my book. So. Um, Debbie, sorry. Debbie, can I jump in? Please. No matter what these collections, even if they're in an archive, they're still owned by an estate. Like, I just want to be clear about that. Like in ex rare exceptions, they're not. But for the most part, if you go to the Octavia Butler collection, it's at the Huntington, but it's still owned by Octavia Butler's family. Copyrighted. So, yeah. mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so you're still going to end up, and I had to do this with the Cleavers, like that Cleaver archive at the Bancroft at Berkeley. I still had to get permission to quote 
stuff from that archive, even though it wasn't housed with the family, it was housed at Berkeley. I still had to get a number of different kinds of permissions to quote published and unpublished material, both in and outside of Berkeley. So the person who asked that earlier question of like, what's to stop me from doing this? Like the answer is that it's absolutely still owned by somebody. Is that unless you're out of copyright, is that correct? Or does that not, uh, I'm now, I'm sorry, we've become, we've turned this into a copyright and fair use panel. Uh, uh, but now I'm desperately curious is does it, do those sorts of papers fall out of copyright uh, the same as others do? I, I'm not a lawyer, I have no All idea. All right, well, maybe, and I see already time is, uh, I was told, oh, you know, 45 minutes is a long time. I said, no, no, these are biographers. This will not be a long uh, time. We will race through this discussion. So let me ask, uh, let me turn a little bit to the question of the writing stage. Um, when you are, of course, setting the table yourself, you uh, can put anything down on it. Uh, so it's a big, wide open challenge to decide what is on there. On the other hand, if you are writing uh, a later biography, you are, of course, uh, maybe feeling like you have to answer to other people's interpretations, whether you like it or not. Um, any thoughts about the writing process being somehow different? I think we're all mostly first biographers, so maybe the comparison isn't there, but any thoughts about how you choose to do your winnowing and shaping of the material in these cases? I believe I had uh, Carol, actually. She had a, a warning, I believe is what she said. Well, I have my method, which probably should come with a warning. For me, I really have to put everything on the table first and then figure out what's there, I guess, and what order to serve it in and so forth to continue with your metaphor. Uh, I, there's supposed to be this wonderful new program called Scrivener that allows you to put everything together. I haven't used it, maybe I will in the future. But you have to find some way, for me, it's just a word document that's a chronology or a timeline, but you have to have one document that has cross-references to everything you have, including those thousands of photographs that you're taking at whatever archive, because now you can take photographs of documents in a lot of places. So you go there and you come home with 10,000 photographs and no idea what you've seen while you were there. And then I also make a ring binder of all the letters that are in order, but those still have to be cross-referenced to this other document. Otherwise I can't, I can't have it all in one place. One thing I always have trouble with is remembering what's in articles, like with Alice Adams, because she was really popular during a few years of her lifetime, there were all these profiles and I could never, you know, I had them filed all over and hanging around my office, but I could never remember where things were. So I probably should have broken those down and put the pieces into my own document as well. But uh, then, you know, then you have to find the shape of the story and all this stuff, because if you are the first biographer, nobody has pre-sorted it for you. Mm -hmm. You've got to find, you know, the telling details, not, the, not just every detail that's been my biggest challenge has been having access to a lot of material uh, and that that's not processed. And I have, I have so much appreciation now for processed archives uh, where you can just sort of go in and pinpoint things. And even then it's not, it really depends on who's processed it and how detailed it is. And, um, and it's still a treasure hunt, but, but, and with my first subject, there was, um, there were some materials in archives of hers. Um, but the rest of it, I found just by going to the people in her life and they would pull out a box from the attic that had um, a stack of letters from her or um, in one case, a box of her unpublished manuscripts and you know random things like that, that then I, I had to put into an order. And I did the three ring binder too with letters in chronological order. I use the same method Carol does. I have a massive uh, 
Well, now it's about 8,000 page chronology for my, but you can cut and paste things. So I've been cutting and pasting large chunks of things in my first biography when there was less cutting and pasting, uh, it was a shorter chronology. But I'm curious, Justin and Abby, do you do the same thing? I feel like I can't see the shape of the story unless it is literally contemporary, I'm seeing everything contemporaneously. Uh, there was a fire over here. His mother was sad over here, and and here he is writing this book. I, I, I but maybe other people have other ways of handling. Uh, I'm curious what you guys do. I'm pointing to you, Justin, as well. I, yeah. <laughs> uh, I would say mine is a little bit right more rhizomatic. I do have a like a document where I put a kind of scrolling linear narrative in the in the word document for the whole manuscript. But then when I go through an archive what I do is two things. I read each page and I look for informational shit that is just like biographical like this gets us from point A to point B and I put that directly into the document and like almost immediately but then I'm also looking for gems, right? Like illustrative examples that really help understand this moment. I'm not saying anything surprising here. I'm sure that all of you that write biographies or read biographies are familiar with this. But then I also put those into the document as well, alongside the kind of like the biographical things, so that I'm constantly kind of making a reduction and like putting the ingredients in through the archive. And then from that kind of winnowing it down draft after draft. Um, but my initial impulse is to both include biographical stuff and these like little vignettes um, that give kind of flavor or dimension to the subject of the biography. Mm -hmm. Uh, same. Uh, oh, wait, I have a question here. Sorry, Carol. Uh, Elizabeth Ranker is asking, Carol, do you create paper copies of your archival scans for your binder? The, the paper question. Did you, you know, that's kind of shifted over the years. But yeah, for my ring binder, I print the letters. It's not every single letter that she ever wrote that I have. Uh, so I am already doing a reduction, I guess, yeah. with the things I choose to print. But I, I still like some paper, yeah. But, you, go ahead, but you know, searchable is more important. Like if you type those sentences from those important letters into your chronology, then you can find them. Oh yeah, that's the charm, especially as it gets longer and longer. Um, I'm wondering about the perennial problem that all biographers have, which is I want to put everything I found into the book because I love my subject and this is the need and look, I mean, it turns out he really loves dry toast. And, and there's a moment where he eats dry toast uh, at a significant moment or he puts butter on. Do you feel there's more pressure as a first biographer to be like, if I don't put it in there, no one will probably come back this way again, as opposed to wanting to really shape the later interpretations in a way that perhaps will maybe guide later interpreters? As opposed to? Well, yes, I do think having a strong interpretive lens, strong interpretive yeah. narrative is different than putting in everything that you found because it was really cool. <laughs> I, I don't, maybe I'm, maybe I'm being naive when I say that, but I know a lot of biographers have that problem, even when- No, I think with the first biography, there is that issue with thinking it'll be lost if you don't put it in there, but- that's what archives are for. You know, try to put your own stuff in an archive somewhere. That's right. Justin, you were going to yeah. say. I think you have to decide what you believe before you write the biography. And I myself am a straight up hardcore leftist Marxist. And so I see the biography as an opportunity to think about how the individual reflects historical conditions. So I'm not interested in putting any details in there that don't help me illuminate what is going on in history. So when I'm talking about Iceberg Slim, I'm never just talking about Iceberg Slim, I'm also talking about Jim Crow, I'm talking about the civil rights movement, I'm talking about the Rodney King beatings. Um, those are the things that are important to me. And so every detail that I include about Iceberg Slim is in the service of telling that broader narrative. 
I, I see that uh, Rachel Greenfield has asked um, a question uh, very similar to that. Have you already decided with what attitude you're approaching your subject before you start your uh, chronology? And you, Oh, well, even they're saying even before you start your chronology and your quote typing. So you sound like, yes, you, you come to this with enough general knowledge that that's where you, you're looking. You've chosen this subject, Justin, it sounds like, to be a lens on a time that you find interesting. Certainly as someone who studies... African-American history, especially from the time of the Great Migration to now, I have a pretty clear sense of what has happened to Black people under the regimes of white supremacy and police violence. And because I have those pretty strongly held beliefs, that does inform the way that I think about someone like Iceberg Slim or anybody, any Black person who's serving under the criminal justice system. So, um, yeah, that is a that is a kind of a model and, and a framework that I bring when I bring a framework to this topic. Well, let me let me turn it to Abby because uh, it's a similar question. Some, uh, Sarah Fitzgerald has here. Well, Sarah has a point above it, which is I wish archives would enlist more retired baby boomer volunteers to create finding aids. An excellent idea. I wish somebody would hear that. Uh, those baby boomers, they don't have enough to do. Uh, but, uh, but Sarah's question is, uh, to re repeat an earlier question that got lost in the chat, uh, to Abby, curious about Madeline Langle's memoir about her marriage, two-part invention, has that turned out to be accurate? So that uh, slightly different than you may be not coming at from it, maybe you are coming at it from a her place in history and how she illuminates 20th century literary culture or feminist culture or lots of things. Mm -hmm. But it also, you have quite a, the, she has written a great deal about herself, like all of these characters. Did you feel like you were in debate with uh, her writing about herself? And, and most specifically, has that turned out to be accurate, her memoir? Well, first I will say I do have a pair of retired baby boomer volunteers who are creating a finding aid of my, um, I think it's it's more than 30,000 digitized images that I have of, of Langle papers. See, everyone um, needs some of those. Yeah. Everyone needs some and, of those. And uh, they're so excited about it. And they're a married couple and they're amazing. Uh, they're actually very tech savvy, but... Um, so she wrote a series of um, of memoirs called the Crosswicks books that, that there's there's a lot of truth in there, but there's a lot of fictionalization um, and figuring out what's what is really challenging. It's not always clear cut. A question for all of you, because I feel this in the book I just finished um, uh, because I relied somewhat, maybe too much sometimes, uh, on the memoir that my subject wrote, which is plainly not correct, whitewashed. And, uh, and so I happened to have the uh, ghostwriter's notes. So it was easy for me to see where it was whitewashed specifically, but it was also clear that uh, it was whitewashed in a variety of different ways. But I had a real hesitation about wanting to argue with her because I also wanted to rely on her statements about herself to some extent. So I didn't want to undermine her credibility right off the bat. Did you find yourself arguing with uh, the interpretations of your own subjects and how did you handle that? Speaking well, I, um, my, my book's still in progress, so I'm still figuring and I'm, I'm really still in the research phase. So um, uh, I haven't quite figured out how to handle that because um, I have not only the Crosswicks journals, which were the published memoirs, but also I have more than have about 60 years of her private diaries that she wrote in almost wow. daily. Wow. And then she also gave many, many speeches and lectures in which she told and retold many of the same anecdotes, some of which are in her journal, some of which are in the published books. And there are many slightly different variations on the same anecdotes. And so trying to figure that out is, is and, and how do I, um, when I address the fact that she wasn't always truthful, or she she believed in the spirit of the truth, not the the letter of the truth. Yes. So, and she said she said that often. And um, so, uh, how do I then quote her journals with authority as evidence for anything? If mm -hmm. if if that evidence, if I'm also calling that evidence into question, so I'm trying to. Those are questions I'm working through right now. Yeah. Other thoughts about how you, Carol and Justin, how you handled that. 
uh, I, we haven't talked about biographer's voice, but uh, Justin just touched on it with having, knowing what you think before you get too far into it. Uh, yeah, you're, you're writing the book. You've got views on these things and there are ways to state them. Whether you, I don't know if you want to necessarily argue. I'm thinking mainly of, at the moment of Raymond Carver's essays about his children, which were incredibly self-defensive and self-deceiving. And, you know, I got to know both of his children. So I didn't have to argue with them. I just had other sources and other lights to throw on it. You know, and that's, that's just one of the things you're doing as a biographer. You're not an apologist for your subject. You're trying to tell the story with as much accuracy and breadth as you can. And you don't believe each source, but the combination of them leads you to your own view. Just really quickly, I had a really interesting experience when I, I presented my book on, on Eldridge Cleaver at the Oakland Library and a number of former Black Panthers came for me. Like they came to the talk in order to argue with me about Eldridge Cleaver because without getting into the like micro politics of the Black Panther Party, Eldridge Cleaver was ousted from that party in the early 70s and the Black Panthers basically turned their backs on him. So they wanted to come and fight me about Eldridge Cleaver. And it was a really interesting experience where they were matching their kind of personal histories against my archival knowledge. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, it was friendly enough, um, but it was clear that we had two different perspectives. You know, they were there to tell their kind of personal stories and how they felt about Eldridge Cleaver. And I was there to say, look, I've unearthed all of this archival material and this tells a certain story as well. And I'm also not gonna, you know, naysay your point of view, but also it's important to know this information about Cleaver to get the whole picture. So that was an experience where, you know, these are people that I respect more than anybody, the Black Panthers. Um, and yet I found myself in this really interesting argument with them over the contents of that book. Um, I would have loved to have been there for that. Um, I am very sorry to say that this uh, time has raced by and it is 5.30. Um, it, uh, so what I will do is let me say thank you to everyone, all the panelists for being here. It's a delight, a genuine delight. And let me say thank you to everyone who tuned in because this is a fabulous, uh, fabulous audience uh, with great responses. Thank you, Carol. Thank you, Justin. Uh, thank you, Abby uh, and everyone else. And uh, next year, uh, we'll see you maybe in New York and we can all have a drink together. <laughs> Bye. You just heard highlights from the panel discussion, writing the first biography of your subject from BIO's annual conference held virtually in May 2021. It featured moderator Debbie Applegate with panelists Justin Gifford, Abigail Santamaria, and Carol Glenica. To learn more about BIO or to hear other episodes in our podcast series, please visit our website biographersinternational.org. I'm bio member Sonia Williams in Washington, D.C. Enzo De Palma created our theme music. And until next time, thanks so much for listening and have a fantastic day. <laughs>